Father, we acknowledge morning that you save us and then you call us to something. You call us to walk with you, to trust you, to place ourselves in your hands. Even when we can't see what's coming, even when the winds come up, even when the waters rise, when pain seems to be on the horizon, still you call us to trust you. And I pray this morning that as you speak to us through your word, that we might see that even in the darkest of times, you provide all that we need. I pray that you will quiet our hearts this morning so that we would hear your voice. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Well, we are spending some time in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and if someone who has never read the Bible knows one story from the Bible, it's probably the one that we're going to talk about this morning, Noah and the ark. Now, even though so many people, even people that don't go to church, that don't read the scripture, even though so many people are familiar with the story of Noah and the ark and the flood, it's often confusing to me about how it is portrayed. Um, if you see a picture of Noah and the ark, I, I just see a lot of times a little boat that's kind of shaped like a tugboat. Ever, anybody seen this little rounded boat? With all kinds of happy animals on the deck, usually lions and giraffes and zebras and elephants. And uh, Noah, rotund, roly-poly, little Noah with a bushy white beard sticking his head up through the window, smiling with blue skies and puffy clouds. So much so that we even decorate nurseries and babies' rooms with Noah's Ark and rainbows and animals. and But that's not really the picture that Scripture gives to us. Many of you will remember when Hurricane Katrina hit the southeastern United States. It was in 2005, so, you know, some of you weren't born yet. Well, Catherine, you were born, sorry. But <laughs> uh, these guys weren't born. Some of you weren't. But if you remember the devastation of Hurricane Katrina, 1,800 people were killed when this Category 5 hurricane hit the United States. $41 billion in insurance claims, $75 billion of federal aid, 300,000 people lost their homes and were displaced because of Hurricane Katrina. It rained for three days, and there were winds of 75 to 110 miles an hour. In Genesis 6 through 8, when we read about the flood, the scripture tells us that it rained for 40 days. If we were to read the whole 
passage. We don't have time because it's several chapters, but if we were to read the whole thing, we would learn that the waters continued to rise for 150 days. The waters kept getting higher and higher. It was 371 days, more than a year, before the waters had receded enough so that they could safely leave the ark. The water at its peak was so high that the highest mountaintops were 25 feet underwater. I imagine that it was not a pleasant, nor a relaxing, nor a fun boat ride. The entire population of the world was wiped out, except for eight people. All of the animals, all of the birds were killed, except for two of each species. It was unfathomable, unparalleled death and destruction. That's what the scripture tells us about the flood. Now the question that we have to ask ourselves is, why would God do this? Why would God destroy what he had so carefully and lovingly created? Just two weeks ago, Tim talked to us about creation, the beginning of the world. In the beginning, God created the world by the sound of his voice. And it wasn't just good, it was very good. In fact, it was flawless. It was sinless. It was literally paradise. I believe when we actually look at what the scripture says about the flood, it's really a microcosm of the whole Bible. We have man and sin. We have God and judgment. But in all of the destruction and devastation and the judgment, we see something else. The story of the flood is a story of restoration. It's a story of God setting things right in his creation that had been broken. We're also going to see that before there can be restoration, there must be judgment and repentance. When we look at the flood, we see that the flood points to Jesus who entered into the waters of death and came out the other side with new life and a new covenant. Of course, sin was not defeated by the flood, as we will see in our later studies in the book of Genesis. That happened on the cross. But the flood confirmed the story of the Garden of Eden, and that is this. We don't need a better world We need a savior. Cleaning up the world is not going to solve our problems. The world is doomed. But God offers rescue. 
Now this story is far too long for us to read this morning. If you have some time this afternoon or this evening, the next time you pick up your Bible, you may want to read it. It stretches for five chapters, Genesis 6 all the way through to chapter 10. So we can't read it all, but we're going to read a few verses from chapter 6 which give us the overview. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to read the first few verses as we start. Now last week, if you were with us, Tim taught us about the fall and the origin of sin. Adam and Eve were in this, this flawless place, this sinless place. It was all very good. They had everything that they needed, but they sinned. And one of the things that Pastor Tim talked about last week was that the origin of sin was right here in the hearts of Adam and Eve. And we looked at James chapter 1 that tells us that very thing. Their sinful hearts, their, their self-focused hearts, and the lies of Satan resulted in sin. And sin entered the world. And the world from that moment on was cursed. Cursed with weeds, cursed with thorns, cursed with pain, and most importantly, cursed with death. If we were to read the ensuing chapters where Tim left off last week and where I'm picking up the story this week, we will find that it did not take very long for death to enter the world. For Adam and Eve had two sons. The names were Cain and Abel, and God instructed them what he desired of them. And in a fit of jealous rage one day, Cain picked up a stone and murdered his own brother. Sin entered the world, and death with it. I want you to notice what we read here in Genesis 6 and verse 1. It says this, When man began to multiply... On the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years." The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. There's a lot to process in those verses, isn't there? In fact, a couple of those verses are some that contain some of the deep questions that are asked often. What in the world does this mean? Notice in verse 2 it says, The sons of God took daughters of men as their wives. Now often when people look at this, this is often interpreted as angels marrying human women. But there's really no justification for that. That's speculation and supposition. There is only one place in Scripture where angels are called the sons of God. There are actually many, many places in the Scripture where human beings are called the sons of God. So it's a stretch for us to think that this is angels marrying human women. In fact, Jesus himself said that angels were not sexual beings. 
and they were not given in marriage in the book of Matthew. I think we should best understand this as powerful men, perhaps leaders, rulers, taking multiple wives. What is often missed when we see this and it says, the sons of God took the daughters of men, we miss that little phrase there in verse 2, any they chose. The word any they chose actually leads us to believe that they took multiple wives. And so what we are seeing here is likely the origin and the proliferation of polygamy. Which as we read the scripture, we are going to find has been an issue and had been an issue since that point. But then when we combine verses 1 and 2 with verse 4, we see more. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And this is where things really get interesting. Because the common interpretation of the word Nephilim is giants. So now people put these two together and say, oh my goodness, giant angels were marrying human women. <laughs> Again, let's step back just a moment and take a little bit more careful look here. And what we find is that the word Nephilim can mean giant. It can also mean a bully or a tyrant. And so if we put these two verses together, what we more likely have is that powerful men, rulers, leaders, people who had influence began taking multiple wives. It says in verse number four that these were mighty men Men of renown, that simply means they were strong men or they were men of reputation. And so what we probably see here is that as certain men got to a certain point in their influence in society and gained power and gained influence and gained reputation, that they used it for immorality. And they used it to take many wives. They used it to commit polygamy. So I know these verses are interesting and provocative and scandalous. And they are included here as examples. But they are actually not the point of this section of scripture. I think what happens is often when we read these verses we think, Oh my goodness, what does this mean? Some crazy outlandish thing. But I want you to look carefully and see the point not miss it. You maybe saw it when I was reading. It's the very beginning of that very first verse of Genesis 6. It says, when man began to multiply. Why was there so much evil in the world? Why would we even have to think about these powerful men taking multiple wives and committing immorality and spreading evil in the world? What we need to see is that when man multiplied, sin multiplied. Now if we do some calculation here, we look at the ages and the dates and things that are contained in these first few verses, or first few chapters rather, of the book of Genesis, we find out that it's probably been about 1,650 years since creation. So two weeks ago when Tim read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, to right now 
when man multiplied, began to multiply, it's been about 1,650 years. And so much sin and so much evil has multiplied that God decided to shorten mankind's lifespan. If we were to read chapter 5 of Genesis, that's the first little section of genealogy we have in the Bible, the history of the generations starting with Adam, we would find out that Adam lived to be 930 years old. Kenan lived to be 910 years old. Jared lived to be 962 years old. Methuselah lived to be 969 years old. And if we read the very last verse of Genesis 5, we find out that Noah was 500 years old when his first son was born. I was 28 years old when Gavin was born. And for a few years after that, I thought, boy, I would love to have another child. God did not intend it to be for us, and we started thinking about the possibility of adopting. And then there came a day, oh, I would say I was probably about 44 or 45 years old when I looked at my wife and I said, you know what? I'm too old to have another kid. I'm not even 52 yet, and I bent over to unhook a trailer on Tuesday with Tim, and I spent 10 minutes on the ground in quiet contemplation while my back spasmed out of control. <laughs> and Joellen, comforting me this morning, said, Mike, you're just getting old. <laughs> and that's true. God, when he created the world, was pleased pleased for mankind to live for hundreds of years. Enjoy what I have created. I put you in this place and it is yours. Use it. Enjoy it. Worship me. But because they were so evil, God decided to limit their longevity. And instead of living seven, eight, nine hundred years, God said, that's it. You won't go past 120. So in 1,650 years, we've gone from absolute perfection to this. Rampant immorality and evil. Verse 5 says, I'll repeat it for you. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's quite a statement, isn't it? I mean, that's not, hey, once in a while these guys were screwing up. Or, hey, things are getting a little dicey, guys. You need to rein it in. You need to listen to what I'm telling you. No, every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. There was an abundance of evil and it originated in the heart of mankind and it permeated God's good creation. We need to understand this, folks. This is so key to, to processing everything that's going on in our world today and everything that people out there in our culture and even in our government are telling us that we must do. It is so important that you get this right now. 
We can pass laws, but we cannot legislate man's behavior. It doesn't work. Only law-abiding people obey laws because evil originates in the heart. This is what we're seeing. Well, we're going to see as well the certainty of judgment here in verse number 6. Let me read this verse for you. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's an intense statement as well. God regretted that he had made man. The the word literally means comforted or consoled himself. He was grieved. He was pained. He was saddened. Now, we need to be careful here. We should not look at this as an indication that, that God made a mistake, but rather that he felt sadness at man's violations What was God's desire? God's desire was to create man in his image. God's desire was to give man an opportunity to reflect him, to worship him, to fellowship with him, and he did. God did what he purposed. He did exactly as he planned to do. But Adam and Eve broke the covenant with their sin, and that grieved God. It caused him sorrow. Let me ask you this question. When evil happens in the world, why do people always blame God? When bad things happen, why do people try to blame inanimate objects? I can answer that question for you. Because they do not want to take responsibility for their actions. Evil comes from the heart of mankind. Do not mistake it. God didn't make any mistakes. Adam and Eve did when they broke his law. And God said, I will blot them out. Literally, I will wipe them away. And yet there is a promise of salvation in verse number 8. Notice what it says. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. If you've been here for very long, you've probably heard me say this before. If you mark in your Bibles, circle the word but. That is a hinge word. We are so thankful in this story for that little three-letter word. Because I don't know how closely you're paying attention here, but this is not sounding good, right? For the world. Because of their sin. But. Noah found favor. The word favor there literally means grace. Noah was righteous. Noah was blameless. The word blameless is very interesting there. It actually means sound. 
It means healthy. In the middle of this world that was only evil continually, Noah was healthy. He had a healthy marriage. He had a healthy walk with God. He had a healthy family. Now, if you're paying attention at all, you're probably noticing that it has just gotten slightly more difficult to live a life that is honoring to God in this world than it was, say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 for those of us that are in that age bracket. It's difficult. It's difficult to stand up in June on Pride Month and have it blasted all over the place in your face and say, this is not a godly lifestyle. This is not what Scripture says is right and healthy and good for us. That's difficult to do, isn't it? Now, Imagine if your family was the only one in the entire world that believed that. Folks, thank the Lord that we can come here and be surrounded by other people and other families who believe the same thing to encourage and strengthen each other so that we can go out and live the way that we are to live. But Noah was alone. His was the only family that believe this in the entire world. Imagine what it would be like. No one cared. Imagine if everyone, I know it seems like it right now, but trust me, it's not. Imagine if everyone else in your community was living as evilly as they possibly could. That's what was happening to Noah. And yet in 2 Peter 2.5, Peter tells us that Noah was a herald of righteousness. We don't use that word too much anymore. Do you know what that word means? A herald of righteousness? You do. You just don't know it because you don't think about it. But at Christmas, you sing what? Hark the herald angels sing. Herald is someone who proclaims. And so what Peter is telling us here is that in the middle of all of this unrighteousness, Noah was not only living a blameless life, he's not only living a healthy, sound, godly life, but he was proclaiming it. He was saying, hey, this is wrong. This can't continue. Or there will be judgment would we do that? Would you be willing to proclaim righteousness in the middle of ungodliness? Would you? Do you? God told Noah what he was going to do. And he told Noah to build the ark, which would be their rescue and their salvation. We're not going to take time to talk about the dimensions and the design. Maybe you thought that's what this message was going to be all about today. It's not, if you haven't noticed that. Suffice it to say, it was a massive, strange project. 
He promised Noah that he was going to start again. I'm wiping them out, Noah. I'm cleaning this world out, and I'm starting again with your family, and we're going to make another covenant. If we do the math, we might estimate that it took Noah 75 to 100 years to build the ark. Imagine the questions. Imagine the mockery. Imagine the ridicule. As he raised his family, as he was obedient to God, as he built this monstrosity, as he gathered food and supplies for 75 or 100 years, as his boys grew up, and he said, okay, guys, come on. We need to go get some more lumber. Come on, we got to go get some more hay. Come on, we got to gather the grain. The animals, as they gathered them and they wrangled them all, and as he proclaimed righteousness in the cesspool that he was living in. Genesis 6.22 says simply this, <laughs> Noah did this and all that was commanded him. In Hebrews 11.7, we have one more verse about Noah in the scripture and it might be the most important verse of all of them. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Wow, what a testimony. Being warned of things as yet unseen. That kind of sounds like us, doesn't it? When we read the scripture, what do we know? We know that there is going to be judgment. Judgment is coming. And yet in reverent fear, he obeyed, he lived, he built, he preached, he led, he was faithful. And through all of that, do you know what God was doing? God was giving people a chance to repent. Answer me this. If God had wanted to go to Noah and say, Noah, I'm sick of this. I am going to wipe this world out. I'm going to start again with your family. Here's the ark. Get in it. The rain's starting right now. Could God have done that? Could he? Of course he could. God created the world by the sound of his voice. You think he couldn't have built an ark in five minutes? But he didn't do that. He told Noah to spend 75 or 100 years doing it. Why? So that he could proclaim righteousness, so that he could give people a chance to repent. Can you see our world in the story of Noah? Our world is doomed. But God is offering rescue. We can see as we read the specifications of the ark, there was only one door. Can you imagine hundreds and thousands of animals and the provisions for a year-long journey and there's only one door? We're building a 10,000 square foot building, hopefully someday soon. And there's like 10 doors in it. There was one door. 
only one. There was no other way into the ark, no other way to be safe from the destruction of the flood. Just as there is only one way to be saved from judgment that is coming today. God offers us rescue in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, sometimes people look at stories like Noah and the ark and the flood and they think, man, God is cruel. To kill all those people. God is not cruel, but he is holy. And judgment comes to all who sin against his commands. Thankfully, he is not only holy, but he is merciful and gracious. Yeah, there was a flood, but there was an ark. There is judgment coming, but there is a Savior. There is only one door. There is only one way to be saved. And that's what we celebrate when we take communion together. We celebrate our rescue and we celebrate our rescuer. That Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians says, who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God through him. My friends, I hope you are thankful for the rescue that God has offered you in Jesus Christ. And the cup holder beside you, there is a little cup of juice, there is a wafer of bread. The scripture tells us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that, that the bread is a symbol of Christ's body that was broken for us. And that the juice is a symbol of his blood that was shed for us. Leviticus, all the way back in the first giving of the law, God made it very clear, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Christ shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. Jesus Christ is our shelter from the coming judgment. And that's what we want to give thanks for today. I want to encourage you this morning, as Catherine sings a song for us, to just be quiet there in your seats to give thanks for what Christ has done for you, to go ahead when you're ready and eat the bread and drink the cup and just reflect on what God has done for you in Jesus Christ who offered himself on the cross for us once for all.